Hey, this is Tim. I want to include a quick preamble to this episode. We've envisioned the Work Shouldn't Suck podcast to have two different formats. For some of our episodes, I'll be conducting one-on-one interviews. For others, I'll be co-hosting episodes with my friend and colleague, Lauren Ruffin. To get to know Lauren a little bit better, we sat down to record this you know, get-to-know-you episode at the Eaton Hotel in Washington, D.C. Eaton loaned us their radio studio, so we likely are launching this podcast series in the fanciest way possible, and it's all downhill from here. Without further ado, here you go. Yeah, we got like 30 hours worth of time here, so oh, yeah, yeah. we're, we're going to be good. <laughs> uh, it's like three o'clock, no, we're, we're going all the way to, you know, yeah. Tuesday. Hi, I'm Tim Sanova, and welcome to Work Shouldn't Suck, a podcast about, you know, that. Today I'm joined by Lauren Ruffin. She does fascinating things. I'm lucky to actually be coworkers and colleagues with her at Fracture Atlas. Welcome to uh, Work Shouldn't Suck podcast, Lauren. Thanks, Tim. We're back in D.C. together. Very cool of you to make the trip down Amtrak, riding our country's aging infrastructure (laughs) to get from point A to point B. Yeah, no, that's great. For those uh, who don't know you, you're currently the chief operating officer of Fracture Atlas. No, that's you. Yeah, that's right. You are not. (laughs) That's you. (laughs) We spent so much time together, you're actually taking on my job. Uh, One less thing on my plate. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, no, you're the chief external relations officer of Fractured Atlas where the two of us are to a four-part shared non-hierarchical leadership team. You are the co-founder of Crux, working in black storytelling and immersive technology. You are currently on the board of Black Girls Code. You are the founder of Artist Campaign School. You're on faculty at uh, New York University where you're teaching a course this semester and you're an avid fan of world building games. Yes, and Duke basketball. And Duke basketball. Uh, we'll cover how do you decide who's a bigger basketball fan later in the show because uh, we, <laughs> we we have a colleague, um, LJ, who I think come March Madness, there's going to be some tension in the office. I can't wait for there actually to be tension in the office. Just really excited that someone else cares about the best month of the year. We'll have to do an episode with you and LJ come March. We should. That's a great idea. Uh, one more. It has to be video because she and I have to do the map on the wall. Okay. I want to talk about a couple of different things with you because you're, you're engaged with and co-creating around the future of work in a number of different capacities. Do you consider yourself a futurist? I know people who are actually futurists who would hate that I would co-opt that term. So no, I don't. I think that I am good at reading data and turning data that feels far out into action now. So when you look at some of the data points around work and around the future, there was this interesting article that ran, I think, and I read it in the Times last year that talked about how our government was almost defunded. We almost ran out of cash because so many people filed for extensions. And when you dig deeper into the data, because I was like, that's really curious. Why so many extensions this year in particular? Like, is everyone a conscientious tax tax abstainer? I was like, that'd be really cool. But it turns out there are like 40 million people who are on the verge of having to file some sort of 1099. And with that comes a different way for taxes to work because all of a sudden tax dollars aren't automatically being deposited into government accounts. So what do we do about that? I don't know, but I just think about the way that we work is going to change the way for like everything. And I think there probably aren't a lot of people thinking about it. So how do we prepare for that? And how do we talk about it? Speaking about how, how is work going to change? You are in leadership of two different organizations that have shared leadership teams. 
both at Crux and at Fractured Atlas. Mm-hmm. And Crux is working in some really cool uh, new ways mm-hmm. uh, around structure. So you you just had a convening, an Uncon Crux convening. What what went on and, and what are you just launching? What have you just launched? For the last 18 months, Crux has been a public benefit corporation. It's really designed to partner with black artists as we begin to think about the future immersive storytelling look like. Virtual reality, augmented reality as an industry doesn't really exist outside of a handful of large corporations. So how do black people start to organize now before all the money and all the content is being concentrated and sucked up by a couple of big studios? And then two weeks ago, we announced that we had formed a cooperative. We have an opportunity for us to begin to pool our resources to fund our own content so that we can retain our own intellectual property and begin to carve out a brand in this new space. So that's so that's crux in a nutshell, but really thinking about the entire pipeline of creation from sort of when we first begin, when people first need $2,000 to spend some time working on a script all the way through to distribution. So the cooperative will begin to have, begin to accept members at the middle of December, and then we'll soft launch the distribution platform for XR content in January. So things are moving. You just came off of a presentation at CoCap called You Can Keep Your Black Capitalism. <laughs> and and ba- based on the enthusiasm that I heard on the, the recording, it was incredibly well received. Can you talk to me about yeah. that? I've been thinking about this a lot. You know, you hear about these singular black people who are wealthy, billionaires, millionaires, Bob Johnson, Oprah. There, there is this question out there, which is, do black people have a history or do we have a duty to treat our workers differently because of our history in this country as enslaved persons? Should we spend some time thinking about how we organize and how we start our businesses, what our business do and how we operate and how we create and share wealth because we were marginalized for so long? You know, there's a current controversy with Jay-Z and the NFL. When you look at black capitalists, there's something more disappointing in it because they've not chosen to take a different path. And then you have to ask, like, how much is enough? Like, at some point, you have to think about what would your ancestors want? And I don't know that our ancestors would have wanted us to sort of hoard wealth in the same way that your traditional capitalists do. So that's where that really sprung from. And then just at a basic level, Bob Johnson was the first black billionaire. And I keep thinking, like, what if BET had been a cooperative? What would our country look like if there had been, instead of one billionaire, there had been thousands of black millionaires? How would that wealth have been distributed differently? What would our communities look like? What would our, what would the narrative around around black wealth and wealth disparity, how would that have changed? So yeah, you can keep your black capitalism, Tim. <laughs> and that's the show. Yeah. <laughs> so so what was what was reaction like after your presentation? It was because it was about a five minute long presentation. Yeah, it was just a quick gave. one. I think people were interested. You know, I was I think I was like the second or third person. It was like a lightning round type thing. I'm always surprised that I think back to the world building and some of the things that you you and I talk about a lot. I'm always surprised that people don't ask why, like more often. And I don't. I think there were people who were like I had ne- had never thought about that before. And I'm like, that's why you're so sad when you have essentially like capitalism has pitted Jay Z against Colin Kaepernick. Like that's why it feels that way because we do have sort of different expectations of a guy who grew up in poverty, you know, selling drugs and has made it. We want him to do something different with his wealth. And the reality is he hasn't. And people are sad about it. We don't have the words to talk about it. You said people don't ask why enough. We've had conversations recently around the why around virtual work and fully distributed organizations and sort of the disconnect that 
people have with even imagining what what the future of work might look like when it doesn't include a physical space. Mm-hmm. Has that conversation surprised you in, in any way? Or what do you think that will help connect the disconnects? There are a couple of things happening. One is the shift in just the demographics of the workforce. In, in the U.S. generally, folks in leadership tend to be a little bit older and have really latched on to this notion of the idea that you owe some loyalty to your employer and what the employer, the sort of worker-owner relationship looks like. I mean, since I've been in the workforce even, last 15, 20 years, that's changed. Right down to, you know, how much, one, like technological advances mean that, like, you really can have almost the same level of oversight. I'm going to use that word with, like, a their air quotes up. You can have the same level of oversight of virtual workers that you can, in in some cases, even more depending upon how like creepy you want to be with you know, Big Brother technology. You know, than you can when they're in your work environment. There's another. There's a health and wellness piece. So you know, so many of our staff members of Fractured Atlas live in in New York. I gotta say, like, how can you expect someone to bring their best selves to work when I, several of our employees who are Black and Brown people, and especially women of color are experiencing, have experienced harassment in, in the subway system. How can we expect them to have to do that, to show up to work and do their best work when at some point there's got to be some nervousness about what it feels like to just get on a train? I think there are a lot of sort of reasons why virtual work works, but I think it's definitely the right choice for us, for our sort of tenants of like trust the people you work with to do their job and leave them alone. Let them figure out when they want to do it, where they want to do it, how they want to do it. And trust that they're going to give you the best work possible because we're a cool organization and we're fun to work with. I read an article recently about work as the new religion and included a lot of statistics about the changing demographics around those who consider themselves affiliated with organized religion. I don't know the exact specific, but you know, between 18 and but between 18 and 25, those who identify as being a part of organized religion is, is so much smaller mm-hmm. than it was in previous generations and how there there's this effect where work is being, you know, you see work as your calling, as your religion. And I've been wrestling with this idea of how, how do organizations take care of those who work for them? And mm-hmm. what's the line? But it, this shouldn't be your entire life. And even if you see it as a calling, it should be your entire life mm-hmm. because you're missing a lot and you'll probably burn out really quickly. Yeah. That's really interesting. I, you know, I grew up in, in the country, like in a rural community that still had a vocational school. And I also grew up in the church. So we talked a lot about sort of vocations generally and, you know, to sort of feel like you had a calling and everything else. And I remember that's so interesting that like the trades, like my friends who would go off and get their CDL or become a, you know, a hairdresser, a barber at Votech would have like a vocation. Meanwhile, I was just in like college prep, you know, like, <laughs> like, and I was like, well, that just means I haven't found my calling yet, you know, and I guess that was always the way I thought about it. There's something to that. I'm going to have to have to. But I also think that there and we struggle with this at Fraction Atlas as well, because I mean, I feel like you and I are the ones who are like, please don't bring your whole self to work, (laughs) you know, (laughs) like (laughs) bring 85 percent of you. And I don't mean, you know, I don't bring my entire self to work. I think that work has started filling a void in some way, and I don't quite have the words for it. But there are moments at work where I'm like, something's going on with this person that I care about, but that isn't my family. I don't want them to think that we're family, but I care about them and I want them to be happy. But I also feel like this is a job. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know. I don't know how to fix it. Calibrating, caring. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't, and I don't, it's a struggle, right? Yeah. 
Well, I think of the work that Amy Rosneski and Jane Dutton are doing around work, uh, job career in calling mm-hmm. and how you perceive what you do. One of our former colleagues went to a dinner party once where people weren't allowed to talk about what they did for oh. work. You could talk about anything else, but you couldn't talk about what you, you did. And I, so this is a similar conversation or a question in my mind about like, if you view your work as a calling, that could be difficult to to have a conversation where you're like, yeah. I, don't know, I, I, I mean, my, my dad was a, a Lutheran pastor and, yeah. and viewed his, he was as a, a religious calling. I don't know. I guess these are, are points I'm wrestling with as we think about what does the future of work look like and, and where are healthy boundaries so that people can bring as much of themselves as they want to work, but also don't end up in a charred mess because they can't calibrate that yeah. and turn it off. Fractured Atlas for me was a, sort of a random place to end up because I'm not an artist, I didn't know anything about the arts. Fractured Atlas for me is not a vocation. It's a job that I enjoy my colleagues, I like the work, I like the autonomy. But it's in this weird place where it's not a calling, but it's also not a job, because I bartended forever, and I bartended all through law school. I loved that I didn't have to take that work home with me, but I take Fractured Atlas home with me. And there are two things I miss about work. The first is that, like just having a job, and the second is because I feel like at, even if I fresh out was my only sort of hat I was wearing, we still do so many things and add on to that all the other things I'm doing. I miss that feeling you have when you're in school where you get to like go into the library, walk into the stacks and spend hours sort of pulling every book off the shelf about a topic until you get to know that topic really, really well. And I feel like I don't know anything really deeply anymore. People will call me an expert and I have to push back because I'm like, I remember what expertise looked like. You know, I wrote a paper on Jim Jones. I was an expert in that for this finite period of time. I read everything the library had on it. You know, as much of an expert as you can be at, you know, 19. But (laughs) do you feel like you are an expert in anything? Or do you feel like the more you learn, the more you like are like, oh, I really don't know this at all? Two different ways of looking at this. Yes, I think the more I learn on various things, I think, oh, God, there's so much more to learn about this. And, And you just realize you're never going to get, it's that curve that never reaches 100 the closer you get, the farther you are away from it. And then at the same time, though, there's some there's moments where you can like pull yourself out of the thing that you're in and realize, wow, we, we, we've done a lot on this. We've thought a lot about this. And I probably know a lot more about this than I, I thought. And sort of that perspective shift of saying like, oh, right, everyone else hasn't been thinking about in an entirely virtual organization, how should mail work? Like there's there's some, (laughs) we have colleagues that spent a lot lot of time, time. like granular stuff, like how do you deal with 13 different mail flows Mm -hmm. where you have no physical place to send the mail? Mm -hmm. And so I think things like that, that's why I always tell people they should write blog posts about it. Mm -hmm. The, The work that went into mail distribution and how we handle mail flows, there's so much learning, I think, that would be useful other organizations just take this and, and use it? Probably not, but it, I think it shows steps that you walk through mm-hmm. that can be applied to different ways of thinking. So yeah. expert, in, like maybe someone on our staff is was well, certainly an expert in how Fractured Atlas has figured out how to deal with its mail flow. Yeah. But I think there's just a lot of things. I didn't even name everything that you're involved in. And you come and talk to my class at the new school every year. And one of the things every year they remark, you're introduced as the chief external relations officer of Fractured Atlas. And then we go down the list and they're like, wow, Lauren does a lot of different things. <laughs> um, and it's so great that she does a lot of different things. It's not just like she's a director of development at X place. Oh, God. That probably speaks to the type of person you are and the interest you have. I mean, no shade of development directors at X place, but <laughs> yeah. 
that's a hard job. Yeah. But there's a sense of privilege there. You know, like who else has the freedom to start a company openly while they're at another company? How privileged am I? I've had a, I had a friend who worked on a really cool board game a couple years ago in DC. She launched her Kickstarter and her company found out about it and they fired her. And I'm like, how could you, penalizing someone for entrepreneurship really stinks, but that's the reality of being a worker. So, I mean, there's a lot of privilege there. I come from a family of workers, workers. You know, I kind of expected to be sort of approaching 40 and having to work really, really hard so to get to the place where I could do the things that I really wanted to do and do things like this, like talk to people I like to talk to and work with people like, you know, sort of Marie Kondo in my life. <laughs> like I want everything to spark joy. <laughs> Tim, you spark joy. Oh, uh, you know, working, working at Eaton sparks joy, you know, yeah. like. <laughs> Thanks to Eaton for letting us sit in their cool yeah. radio lab here. This is way more professional than inaugural episode or, of the podcast uh, should be. Yeah, this is actually, it's all downhill from here. It I'm, is pretty, all down- I'm pretty yeah. sure that yeah. it's all downhill. <laughs> to both of our listeners, you're welcome. <laughs> So Lauren, besides working at Eaton, what sparks joy? When you decide what you want to work on, how, how do you decide if it makes the cut or not? It's that, it's that, it's that I'm excited to do it. I feel like, you know, I was a lobbyist for a long time. I worked with a lot of people that did not spark joy <laughs> in my life. <laughs> yeah, it's like, am I excited about the idea of partnering with this person for the next three to six or nine months? And that's really it. Someone would say like, it's either a hell yes or a fuck no. Like, and that's how you make decisions. I want to say it was Warren Buffett, but that feels way too vulgar for him <laughs> to say publicly. But it's someone who's very wealthy who was like, that's how you make decisions. Like you should, and you should feel that strongly about the work you do. It's pretty simple. People make time for the things they care about. And so when someone approaches me, especially for Crux with a project that I believe in, it's like I find a way to make the dollars work. I find a way to sort of lean in and do these things that I care about. I think we all do that to a certain extent. I feel like I've just had the freedom to kind of be able to do that. Why do you think that's not the norm in work? It's got to be either scarcity mindset or trust issues. That's kind of the root of all things evil. <laughs> yeah, start- Especially in the work we do. It starts with resource scarcity. Yeah, yeah. it's, yeah, it's got to be either that or just like you don't trust the people that are coming to you to do things. Or you don't trust yourself maybe to make the leap. I don't know. I wonder if it's just you don't think about it. It's that thing that you do, and, and it's like, this is how an organization should work. This is how a board should work. This is how an annual appeal should work. And you don't ask, ask the why and question it in a way that allows you to see the autonomy and agency that is there. Yeah. That's certainly not the entirety of it. That's probably several books long. Yeah. Um, and someone way smarter than us. Yes. Yeah. We're not going to Or at least if they're that. not smarter, they're most certainly more charismatic. Like they've definitely been thinking about this for a while. As we wrap up, I want to know how many bikes is too many bikes to own? You're an avid owner of bikes. So what's too many? This is a really relevant question in my life because I'm moving into a place with a garage. <laughs> Sky's the limit. Yeah, that's exactly it. Like I'm, I'm sitting here being like the garage is approximately like 200 square feet and each bike takes up this footprint. So I don't know. There's a difference between having a hobby, which is bike riding, and buying bikes, which is kind of what I do. I buy bikes. I think 10 has to be the number that I have to keep beneath. And I'm at five right now. 10 is almost like a small bike shop. Yeah. So I think 10 is my personal bikes, but I also, you know, have three other people who I cohabitate with. Two who have little bikes and one who has a full-size bike. There are nine bikes in the house right now, but I just have limited myself to 10. If you enjoyed the conversation half as much as we did, you're in luck. 
maybe a quarter as much as we did. You're in luck. Lauren and I will be co-hosting a mini series within the Work Shouldn't Suck podcast where we chat with cool friends and colleagues. So stay tuned. If you like this or you didn't like it, let your friends and or people you don't like know. Um, <laughs> thumbs up, add stars, whatever combination is on your uh, podcasting platform of preference. But until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks, Lauren. Yeah, thanks, Tim.